The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, February 23rd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. As we get settled this morning to continue in our worship in God's Word, I, I want to start by reminding you that that we're here because over 2,000 years ago, the, the Lord of hosts, the, the God of the armies of Israel, as he is often referred to in the Old Testament, sent his son on a mission in the midst of his own enemies. His son would defeat his enemies not by killing them, but by dying in their place. We know the story that Jesus would gather to himself and into his family all who would surrender to him as king. And the mission that he was sent on by his father, that, that act of divine war would forever change the course of human history. For one, it meant that the, the Old Testament way of divine warfare was over. There were no longer nations and peoples that God would use his people to exact his justice and his judgment for their sin upon because his son had come and ransomed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation through his victory. We know that Jesus has promised to return again in glory, but until then, on this side of his victory, we can be assured that God is not going to go out to battle against his enemies with his people using the weapons of this world. The Bible reminds us that today, for now, this is the day of salvation. The weapons of our war are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. For now, until Jesus returns, there will be no great trumpet blown calling us to take up the weapons of this world. Rather, God is sending ambassadors into every enemy's stronghold with the message of divine reconciliation. For now, As Paul said to the Thessalonians, until the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. For now, until then, we're called to imitate our king. Peter reminded us that because our king, Jesus Christ, suffered for us, he left us an example so that we might follow in his steps. At one time, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, led his people in a particular kind of divine warfare. And at the time that he will appoint, he will come again, the writer of Hebrews says, a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. But for now, for you and I now, This is the day of salvation. Yet now, we still fight a good fight, Paul says. We still wage a war. And our enemies in this war are the passions of our flesh, which wage war against our soul, Peter said. 
And the devil, John reminded us, a murderer from the beginning, the father of lies. Our battle is a battle for faith, a fight for righteousness, a fight for life and joy. But here's the thing. We fight knowing that the decisive victory has already been won. This is such good news. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus, our king, took on human nature, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Paul reminded the church that God, in sending Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus, which is why Paul would tell the church in Rome and you and I today that in Jesus there is therefore now no condemnation for us. There is no angel, no ruler, no power, nor anything else in all of creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. John would remind us, as he would remind the church then, that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. For now, the war that we wage on this side of Jesus' victory in anticipation for his final return is a battle that the same Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, trains our hands for, the psalmist says. This good news about the battle that we wage on this side of Jesus' victory, why we are here in the first place, is not a commercial break from 1 Samuel chapter 15. We are still going through the book of 1 Samuel, but understanding the victory that God has won on our behalf through Jesus is essential to understanding what is going to be exposed to us in this chapter this morning. This morning, as we go through 1 Samuel chapter 15, we are going to see a picture of the divine war of old, of God's justice and judgment, and at the same time, we're going to experience a call to the war for our heart our joy, and our hope. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 15 this morning. Again, it's a wonderful story. It's a lot of words. So we got to jump in. Samuel, he, he says to Saul, Samuel has come to Saul now, speaking to him again. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. This is going to set for you and I the trajectory of what matters in the rest of the chapter. Eight times in this chapter, go back and note it this week when you reread it, eight times some form of the word to listen is going to be used. Because to listen to the sound is what it says, to listen to the sound of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord is essential for God's people. In particular, it was essential for the king. This is what he was to do, to hear the sound to listen to the sound of the word of the Lord and to obey it. So Samuel reminds him of what God has done for him. He has made you king. These are his people. Now listen, listen to what he says that you might obey him. Verse two, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, Go and strike Amalek and, and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Here is the Old Testament divine warfare being enacted. 
the very thing that has come to an end with the mission that God sent his son on that Jesus enacted in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Prior to that, there were times when God would enact his judgment upon sinners through his people. This is what was happening here. The Amalekites were to experience the divine justice of God through God's people. In God's timing, the days of his patience for the Amalekites had come to an end. Some 300 plus years before, back in Deuteronomy chapter 25, God had told his people, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. Therefore, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Some 300 plus years of God's patience towards the Amalekites, giving them time to turn from their sins, to come to know and to believe in the God of Israel had happened. And the days of his patience had come to an end. God's judgment on their sin was to come. And it was to come through Saul and the armies of Israel. This is what is known as divine warfare. It's very different than any other war that the nations would engage in in that time. Every other war in every other battle, whether it came under the guise of truth or whether it came under the guise of justice, was always a battle for profit. It was a battle for land, it was a battle for people, it was a battle for stuff. Which is why God says you can take for yourself nothing. No slaves, no cattle, no animals, no coins, no nothing. This is not a battle for you to profit. This is an act of my justice upon sinners. My time of patience for them had come to an end. God's just judgment for their sin is going to come to them and it's coming through the armies of Israel. They were not to engage in a battle like the nations. It was entirely different. This was justice. And as we read it, friends, I want you to be reminded that this, again, for us even today, is a pointer to the coming judgment. The promised return of God, when the days of his patience against those who would sin against him and rebel against him will finally come to an end. You realize that to the degree to which you and I want to minimize that coming reality in our own heart is is really to the degree that we want to minimize the sinfulness of our own sin. We're going to see that play out more specifically as we go through the story. But let's pick it back up in verse 4. Saul summons the people and he numbers them in Talim and 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and he laid in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So this isn't a, this isn't a battle about power and, and profit and ego. Saul recognizes the justice of the Lord being called upon. So he reminds the Kenites, this isn't about you at this point. You showed grace and kindness as we were leaving. So the Kenites depart. And in verse 7, we, we watch Saul. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction." But God's justice was not to be like that of the nations. 
God's justice was not for the profit of the people. It was the enactment of his justice against sin. But what we're seeing is Saul becoming like the nations. Saul is becoming a king like the nations. The very thing that people craved, the very thing that people wanted, the very thing that people demanded of God back in chapter eight, we see Saul more fully and finally becoming. In fact, if you were to go read this, these verses this week on your computer, find a, like a Bible gateway or a study light or something free that will show you the Hebrew next to the English, you can see when you look at it, even if you can't read Hebrew, you can see when you look at it, that there in verse nine, when it talks about Saul and the people sparing these things, though Saul and the people are plural, that spared is singular. That's a writing technique they would have used to indicate the primary actor in this whole thing was the single person. It was really Saul. He's become a king like the nations, the very thing they so desperately wanted. And so in verse 10, the word of the Lord has come to Samuel. And the Lord says in verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. It's a tragedy to see Saul turn his back on God. It grieves God. Dale Davis, I've shared with you some of his thoughts on this before. He's a great Old Testament scholar. Dale Davis says nonchalance is never listed as an attribute of the true God. Verse 11, Davis says, does not intend to suggest God's fickleness of purpose, but his sorrow over sin. It does not depict God flustered over a lack of foresight, but God being grieved over a lack of obedience. God is not made of cold and hardened steel. He's not one who's emotionally impervious to all of our sin, no matter how well we think we can justify it. Samuel is not the only one who mourned. God mourned the change in sin in Saul. But this is one of those chapters, 1 Samuel chapter 15, this is one of those chapters full of all kinds of mental and emotional and theological minefields. It's one of those chapters that leaves people scratching their heads because later on in the chapter, in verse 29, Samuel is going to tell Saul that the glory of Israel, speaking of the Lord himself, will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then when the writer sums up the narrative in verse 35, he says again, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So which is it? Does he regret or does he not regret? Entire denominations, entire theological systems and structures, more books than I can keep up with have been written about that question. This is one of those places that people will go to when they try to understand this. We don't have time to dig very deeply into this. Maybe we'll find another venue like a dinner series or an equipped class to go more specifically into it. But let me try to point at least one thing out that is most specifically relevant to the tone of the chapter. There, there are people who take this chapter to mean that God obviously doesn't have exhaustive knowledge of what is to come. If he did, then he wouldn't regret the decisions that he made. Of all the things that are wrong with that reality, of all the things that are wrong about thinking that God is open-ended into what's to come, that he's waiting on our decisions and our actions to determine what he's going to do, that it's like a, a cosmic choose his own adventure kind of thing, of all that's wrong with that when you go to the Bible, 
the thing most related to what's happening here in the chapter that I will at least share with you this morning is to think that in light of this story is to assume that God is not capable of being able to lament over a state of affairs that he himself chose to bring about. It's to think God isn't capable of experiencing some kind of sorrow or lamentation over something he chose to bring about and knew what was going to happen. It's to say that God could not or would not be capable of looking back on the very act of something he chose and lamenting it in one regard while affirming it as wise and good in another regard. Now, trying to figure out an illustration of this with a finite human experience when thinking about the infinitely complex reality of the nature of God is somewhat difficult, but here's my best effort, right? My son, like if, he, if he sins, if he rebels, and, and I discipline him for his sin and for his rebellion, and in response to my discipline of him for his sin, he chooses to run away. I will feel some remorse, regret, but not a remorse that is indicating that I disapprove of actually disciplining him. It was the right thing to do in response to his sin. It was necessary. But I'll feel sorrowful that it ended in this alienation of him leaving and breaking the relationship. But on the other hand, if he were to sin this way again, I would still discipline him the same way again. Now, if in my finite human emotional capacity, if I have the ability to see this action from both perspectives where I can feel both sorrow and both a measure of lament for the thing that I did and his sin that brought it to about, but the same thing, say, if I, if I had to do it over again, thinking the same thing was going to happen, I'd still do it. How much more so the infinitely complex God of the universe Does he have the capacity to see one thing that he brought about knowing what it would bring from both sides being able to be sorrowful and lamentful on one hand but wise and good on the other? For God to say that I feel sorrow that I made Saul king is not the same thing as for God saying I wouldn't make him king if I had to do it over again. He would. Because God is able to feel sorrow for an act he knew knowing what was going to come and yet go ahead and do it for his own wise and good reasons. So later on when Samuel quotes Numbers 25 saying that God does not lie or have regret for he is not a man, it's to say that his regret is not like ours. Our regret usually comes because we don't know what's going to happen. His sorrow, his lamentation comes knowing what's going to happen. It's what makes him God. It's what makes him who he is. He's not a man that he should regret like a man. Now, I know your circuits are like, we'll come back to it in a little bit if we have time. But this isn't a a matter of, of abstract theology. I want you to hear at least this. It matters. Because when God makes a promise to us, he, he does it with complete foreknowledge and he is never caught off guard. And what that means is that all the promises that God makes to us will stand because of his infinite wisdom. It's the best news that you and I can hear about him. But thinking and wrestling with these things is complex because he's infinitely complex. So if your brain feels a little fried, it's okay. 
trying to understand some of these things about the infinitely complex God. I heard one person say, it's like trying to shove an ocean into a raindrop. Some of our, we're just not wired for complete in this. We gotta keep going though. Samuel, he took no pleasure in what he saw happening in Saul. God took no pleasure in what was happening in Saul. And Samuel in particular is gonna take no pleasure in what has to happen next. I remember Samuel now has to go confront Saul. Saul is the king. He's got the armies at his disposal. He's got the power of his nation, of the nation at his disposal. Samuel has to go confront him again now. He's a different man at this point. I mean, you and I, we, we have a hard time sometimes speaking to a friend of ours who's got a nasty disposition. Saul has the power of the entire nation at his disposal. Samuel has to go talk to him. So in verse 12, Samuel rises early to meet Saul in the morning, but it was told to Samuel that Saul had come to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and he turned and he passed on and went down to Gilgal. So if we sit in Carmel with the rest of the Israelites in the story, we get a firsthand view of what's most important to Saul now, isn't it? There he has built a monument to himself. Moses had built a monument to the Lord after his victory but he had named it the Lord is my banner. The monument became an altar to the Lord. Saul has built a monument to himself because the number one thing in Saul is himself, his name and his own face. So Samuel keeps going. He's gonna go down to Gilgal where Saul is. And verse 13, Samuel comes to Saul and Saul says to him, blessed be to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now, I probably got an inaccurate picture of this, but I try to read it like a human a little bit. This isn't Saul and Samuel in the back room of a palace having a diplomatic meeting. This is Saul on the other end of victory, having gathered to himself all the spoils of the victory. Saul's robe is kind of open. His chest hair is kind of hanging out. Got a drink in a hand. Samuel, you've made it. It's very important for, Saul to, for Samuel to be there. Because for Samuel to be there means the priest can now offer the appropriate sacrifices to the Lord, solidifying the victory of his people in front of the Lord and solidifying Saul. Saul's all kinds of excited, but he's not prepared for what's going to happen. Verse 14, Samuel says, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? You can't make this stuff up the capacity for self-deception is going to stagger you by the end of this chapter. Remember, he was supposed to hear the sound of the Lord. He was supposed to hear the voice of the Lord, the sound of God. That was the word in verse one. Samuel says, if you heard the sound of the Lord, why am I hearing all these other sounds? If you really heard it and obeyed it, why am I hearing these things? So Saul says in verse 15, they've brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest, we, now he's in the story, we have devoted to destruction. Oh, all those sheep, all those oxen, it wasn't actually me, Samuel. But we know from the way the writer wrote it in verse nine, it was Saul. It was singular. He was the primary actor in keeping all these things. Oh, it wasn't me, it was the people. It was their fault. We've been talking about blame shifting for weeks with Saul. We see it every single week. We're all too familiar with it. We don't need to linger on it, right? 
We know what it is to look at something and go, oh, no, that's my parents' fault. Oh, I did that. Oh, oh that was the circumstances. If I did that, oh, that's the government's fault. We know all about shifting blame when it comes to our own disobedience to the Lord's word, right? Immediately, first thing Saul does, shift blame. But then he tries to wrap up his disobedience in a, in a moral veneer, right? He's going to try to cosmetically make it look righteous, put some makeup on the thing, right? They kept these things for the Lord. They kept all the things that were disobedient, but they did it for good reasons, right? We meant well. It really isn't all that bad. I cheated on my taxes because I wanted to give more money to missions, right? Thinking about trying to come up with more personal illustrations of all this this week, I, I was staggered to find out, I didn't know this, when the average American worker spends over nine hours a week on non-work-related issues on their computer at work. But man, I'm just encouraging my friend. I got a family member going through a hard time. I was just checking in on see how they're doing and encouraging them with it. I wasn't super busy. So I got ahead on some housework, paid some bills, scheduled some grocery deliveries. I was trying to serve my family. Is that what you're getting paid for? If you weren't that busy, how about talking to your employer and finding something else that you could contribute to? It all sounds good though. We have an infinite capacity to make all kinds of things sound good and sound noble. Those mafia hitmen who sit in church all Sunday morning, spend their entire week doing what they do and then, well, I love my family. I love God, I come to church. Can't be that bad. But this isn't about someone else. It's about you. You and I have this same capacity to even come into a place like this on a Sunday morning to sing, to lift up our, our voices while the sounds of our own disobedience are, are bleeding all around us. Like everything's okay. Like Saul, we, we have no idea in our heart just how offensive this is to God. The capacity for self-deception. It's endless. But here's the thing, just like Saul, at some point we all get caught. At some point, our, our hypocrisy is going to get exposed. We're going to get seen for what it is. And here's the thing. What we do when exposed, what we do in that moment is of life and death importance. This is where the story begins to shift to the part of the war that you and I on this side of the cross begin to wage for our own hearts Saul shifts blame. He, he tries to rationalize his behavior with moral reasoning. Then he takes credit for partial obedience. Did you catch that? They kept these things. They wanted to sacrifice these things, but we devoted the rest to destruction. He only put himself in on the moderately positive part. So Samuel has heard enough though. Verse 16. Samuel says to Saul, stop. Stop. I can't hear it anymore. You are digging yourself an infinitely deep hole. Shut up. I'm going to tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul, in the midst of his party, his celebration, he's there thinking everything's great, right? Looks at Samuel and says, speak. And I imagine, because I think about it, if it was me, there's a, there's a manner of indignation in his eyes and in his voice. This is my victory and my place. What is it you've got to say now? Speak. And Samuel says, 
Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. He reminds him of the position that he has by the grace of God in his life. And the Lord, he sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. He had given you a very clear word, a very clear direction. He had set you out on a very clear mission. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Having reminded him of the grace of God that had put him where he is, Samuel lays out Saul's sin clearly for him. Anointed king, given very clear commands. Why disobey? Your sin makes no sense, Saul. You're acting as though God has not continued to be faithful, continued to be good, continued to be wise, continued to be powerful. The foolishness of his heart who has said there is no God is seen once again in his failure to be obedient to God's word. Which is why in verse 20 he responds to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I I brought back Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and I devoted to destruction the Amalekites. Do you know why he kept Agag? This will help get into what's going on. You know why he kept Agag? Saul was becoming a king like the nations, right? Well, it was common for the nations in that time who would go to battle against other nations for the conquering nation, the conquering army to keep the defeated king alive. Sometimes they would keep some of their inner court, but they would always keep the king and they would lock the king up as their own prisoner. And once a year, usually, there was a particular ceremony that the nations would have where they would parade out in front of all the people, their military, their strength, their might, and in chains, emaciated, having been sitting in prison, would be the kings that they have conquered of those nations. Saul wanted to be the king of kings. He kept for himself the best of their livestock because for the Amalekites, that was their capital. He kept their best resources and their king because he wanted to be seen as the king of kings. In fact, Samuel says, so desperate to be seen this way, so desperate to be exalted this way, you pounced on these things. Your heart was looking for them. You were craving them. This is what you wanted. Saul has become a king like the nations. But what Samuel was going to try to help him to see and what God's word helps us to see even in the story is that Partial obedience is still disobedience. Saul wanted to pick and choose what commands of the Lord he would obey, which seemed convenient or consistent with what was best for him in the moment. And he wanted to make it look like he was doing it to serve the Lord. You and I are no strangers to the same temptation. And when pressed, verse 21, he's not going to get off story. The people took the spoil the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. You can hear it in his words. I hope you are beginning to see at least over the last couple of weeks as we've watched Saul continue to pass the blame at every turn whenever his sin is exposed. I hope you're beginning to see and beginning to feel just how weak the tendency to not own the reality of your own sin and the responsibility of your own sin, yet looking to pass it off on someone else. I hope you're beginning to see just how weak that is. This is the king. 
and he's throwing his people under the bus while excusing his own participation in the sin. There are few things quite as weak as judging these other people while excusing himself. But Samuel is not going to have any of it. Look at verse 22. Samuel says, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of the rams. To listen, to hear the sound, remember, to hear the voice, to hear the word of the Lord, to listen in such a way that it affects your heart and compels you to obey out of confidence in whose voice it is that's speaking to you. To listen and to obey is better than all the religious cosmetic acts of righteousness you could ever dream up. All the services you attend, all the projects you go serve on, all the causes you champion, to obey, to listen, and to obey is better than all of it. This is what Samuel is trying to help Saul see. This is the nature of true faith to hear the sound, the word, the voice of the Lord, to believe it as good and right and true and to obey it. It's necessary for God's people. I mean, do you think God is as overjoyed with you sitting here this morning as he would be and you simply hearing his voice, reading his word, hearing his direction and obeying it? I mean, honestly, do you think God is so bored and so poor that what he wants from you is two hours of your time and a few dollars on a Sunday. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants you to hear the sound of his voice, his word to you, for it to affect your heart in such a way that you understand that it is the voice of the one true living God for his glory and the best and the deepest of your joy and to obey it. That's what he wants. Why? Well, Samuel's gonna get clear. Verse 23, our rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. One writer said it this way. I love it. See if I can make it clear. He said, when God says one thing and we consult the little wizard of our own wisdom and then stubbornly choose to go our own way, we're idolaters. We've not only chosen to consult ourselves as an alternative to God and thus become guilty of the sin of divination, because that's what divination is, to consult something other than God for wisdom and direction, but we go beyond that and we actually esteem the direction of our own mind over God's direction and become guilty of idolatry. And worst of all, the idol is our own self. Listen, Saul. Spin it however you want. Halfway obedience to God's voice is still rebellion. It's disobedience. It's divination and idolatry. And it's heinous. Not ultimately because of what it caused you to do, but because of whose authority you have rejected in the process. Which is why Samuel is going to say, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And so Saul says to Samuel, I've sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. There it is. 
Why did Saul obey the voice of the people, the sound of the people, and not the sound of the Lord as he had been instructed? Because he feared them more than he did God. He feared their displeasure with him, the cost to his name and his reputation before them more than the holiness of the Lord. Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of your heart is the command given to the king, yet he has feared the people. He has feared man and turned away from following God. Again, friends, as is common to us, Saul knows what it is to fear the future of his reputation. For the eyes of the people around him to seem so large and so powerful, but the eyes of the Lord himself paled in comparison. So like Saul, we find ourselves fearing one rather than the other. And the human reality is we're always going to obey the one we fear. Saul's sin has been exposed. It's been laid before him And here's the deal. When you and I sin, and you will, and you do, God calls us to repent, not wallow in remorse. There is an altogether different reality between remorse and repentance. As the story unfolds in the rest of the chapter, we're going to see that Saul was remorseful for what he has done and what has happened, but he's not repentant. They're very different, even if at times they sound the same on the surface. Listen to the story. We're going to unpack it. We're going to pull it apart as we close the story down here. Verse 25. Now, Saul says, therefore, okay, you've exposed it, right? We've gotten down to it. I overlooked the command of the Lord. That's what that transgressed means. I overlooked it. I missed it, all right? I missed it. We're clear. Verse 25, or 40, yeah, 25. Now, therefore, pardon my sin. Do what you got to do. Pardon it. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Samuel, I need you to offer these sacrifices of victory to the Lord. These sacrifices of thanksgiving to solidify this victory before the Lord and his blessing on me as king. Whatever you got to do, can you just look, let's pardon this thing, let's move on. This is what I need to happen. If Samuel doesn't offer those sacrifices of thanksgiving to the Lord, Saul doesn't look vindicated in front of the people. Pardon me so we can get on with what needs to happen. And Samuel says to Saul, I will not return with you for you've rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore. And you've got to picture this. Back in Numbers chapter 15, God had given the people a very clear instruction on the hem of all of their garments, all of the people, not just a particular group, all the people. They were supposed to sew a tassel It was going to be on the ends of all their garments. And this is what it says in Numbers 15. This tassel shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you were so inclined to do. This tassel is supposed to be there on all of your garments and you'll see it on everybody to remind you of my commandments and your propensity to think you're wise in your own eyes. You shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. And in this moment, when he's confronted by Samuel, he spends all of his stories and all of his rationalizations. He tries to find a way to get Samuel just to pardon this thing so he can get on with the business of exalting himself in front of the people. But Samuel won't do it. 
tears that tassel off, literally tearing himself from his obedience to the commands of the Lord, symbolizing his own disobedience. Samuel seizes the moment. Samuel says to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. It's given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. He doesn't change, Saul. You're the one that's changed. Then Saul says in verse 30, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. There it is, right? That's what he wants. What he really wants finally comes to the surface here, right? There's a measure of sorrow probably that he has sinned, that he's disobeyed. But what he's most concerned about is his own reputation. Come and honor me in front of everybody else. Friends, remorse leads us to come up with all manner of alternative narratives to excuse and moralize or justify our disobedience. We might blame others for it. We might come up with righteous sounding reasons for it. I'm not that bad. I'll make up for it next time, whatever it is. But the Bible calls all of those efforts to justify our sin blasphemy. It's just an exercise in you and I trying to determine and justify what we think is right and wrong. It's just you and I listening to a different sound, a different voice than the voice of the one who has given himself to us. God does not want your remorse. He doesn't want your rationalizations. He wants your repentance. They're not the same thing. 1 Samuel chapter 15 for you and I now on this side of Jesus' victory is an invitation for us who like Saul are all too guilty of half-hearted obedience, are all too familiar with all the mechanisms of trying to rationalize it in our hearts. For all of us who are all too familiar with what it means to be deceived by our own heart. This week when you read this story, And you hear God say to Saul through Samuel, when you were the least of these, I made you king. I want you to hear the Lord say to you while you were still sinning, I sent my son to die on a cross for you. He was perfectly obedient to my voice. He heard the sound of my voice and was perfectly obedient to my word in your place. He was then rejected and punished for your disobedience, for your rebellion, for your idolatry, for your blasphemy in your place. He suffered what you deserved. He died a rebel idolater's death so that by my grace, through your confidence in him, you might experience a saint's acceptance. It's what theologians call the great exchange. Jesus suffering what we deserved for our sin. God in his grace offering us the righteousness that only Jesus deserved in his obedience. Friends, if you have surrendered to Jesus in faith, what this means and how it relates to repentance, what it means is that you never again have to fear the Lord's rejection of you. Ever. This makes all the difference between wallowing in remorse and trying to figure out how to get out and get out from under and get around what we've done wrong and experiencing the grace and renewal of God's forgiveness to us that he's offered through his son. 
Repentance is only possible as you and I continue to see and enjoy the grace of God to us in his son. When you and I are gripped by the reality that we no longer have to fear rejection from God for anything and in any way, we are set free to boldly and regularly live a life of repentance. The heartbeat of Jesus' ministry was this call to repent and believe in the gospel. You see, repentance is more than just this intellectual assent to knowing that something wrong was done. This is what happens. So many of us get caught up in our heads and we realize we've done something wrong and here's what I've done wrong. And do you know what we do next? What do we do next? We try to figure out how to not do it again next time. When you and I see we've done something wrong, recognize what we've done wrong, and then figure out how to not do it again next time, what is our confidence in at that point? Our confidence is in how well we can create the right system and not sin again. Friends, the beauty of the gospel, the reality of seeing and regularly enjoying the grace of God to us in Jesus is that we no longer rely on our own wisdom and our own efforts. Repentance takes us from being stuck in our head, intellectually understanding what went wrong and drives us down into our heart that we might be able to understand with clarity what is it I have done? How have I violated God's command? Is my heart grieved over how my sin violates the Lord and my family and my friends? Is my heart hating this sin because it decreases my service to Jesus? How am I practically turning from this sin and toward God? If you've been doing CBR with us for a number of years, you might remember in the back of the CBR journal, there used to be this appendix. It was called multi-directional repentance. The single best one-page explanation of biblical repentance I have ever seen, and it's not in the journal anymore. So here's what I'm gonna do. When, when the sermon goes online this week, I'll attach a PDF to it. Because biblical repentance that God opens up our hearts to, that we get to live in the joy and the freedom of, it's multi-directional. It takes us downward from intellectual ascent that something went wrong deep into our heart to see the depth and the specificity of our sin. But as we see the depth and the specificity of our sin, it's violation and offense to God. It's offense to others. It turns us upward as well. It turns us upward in confidence and faith to the Father where we can confess our sins. If it doesn't show us again the magnitude of his grace to us in his son, we're left trying to figure out how not to do it again. But deep biblical repentance always helps us to see the depth of our sin and the magnitude of it, only that we can see the greater magnitude of God's grace to us. Now we're free. He's not going to reject us. We haven't done something that now has violated his forgiveness. He'll never turn on us again. Paul said nothing can separate you from his love. Now I can come to him. I can confess it. I can own it. I can lay it before him how I have violated his good command to me. We can turn to him and receive the assurance of his forgiveness, the refreshing of his grace, and the reminder of the power of his spirit alive in us, moving us towards obedience. It's downward, it's upward, it's backward. Right? If our, if our sin is not simply just against God, but our sin violates those around us, it has consequences on our friends and our families and our communities and our neighbors. Knowing by the grace of God that he is never going to reject me. The confidence that I have in his eternal grace and love towards me. 
It now frees me in the fullness of repentance to turn backwards to those that I have hurt, those that I have violated, those that I have sinned against, and pursue the peace and the unity that he sent his son to die for. And not only does it turn us backwards there, it turns us forwards too. Because you and I can live in the freedom of his kindness, the freedom of his grace, knowing again, he's not going to reject me. I can own the propensity of my own heart's sin, the propensity of my own heart to do this one more time unless his Holy Spirit continues to change me, empower me, and make me more like his son. He frees us into a life of repentance. We don't have to settle for a life stuck in shallow remorse and regret. We never have to fear his rejection. So we're free to repent fully and boldly and intelligently and regularly. It's why Luther, when he would write his 95 thesis that would shock Western history, he began it by saying, this is the Lord's will. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. 1 Samuel 15 is an invitation to us on this side of the cross to live in the freedom and the joy of repentance, of knowing the grace of God, enjoying the grace of God, and growing in the grace of God day in and day out. This is the privilege that is ours for now. For now, until Jesus returns. And I say it for now because repentance is not eternal. There will come a time when Jesus returns and the fullness of his kingdom will be established and the finality of God's judgment against sin will come. And in that day, for those who have believed upon Jesus, have received him as king and as savior, we will spend eternity with him being made like him. There will be no more repentance. But for now, this is the freedom and the joy he's called us into. Hear the Lord's, the Lord's words this morning. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Enjoy the gospel. Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond. Father, we thank you that you want more for us and you have more for us than a life of shallow remorse, a life of empty regret, a life of thinking we have to come up with the methods and the systems and the patterns to fix ourselves and change ourselves. You hold out to us the fullness of joy. You hold out to us true life. You hold out to us the promise of transformation into the image and likeness of your son. You hold out to us the promise that we never have to fear because you don't change and you don't lie. The promise that you will never reject us in your son. God, we want to live in the fullness of joy and delight and satisfaction in your grace. We want to be a people who live a life of joyful repentance. Lord, save us from a life of shallow regret. Lord, do in our hearts what only you can do by your spirit, that Jesus would be exalted and that Jesus would be enjoyed. We ask this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.